If you would, please go ahead and open up your Bibles to our passage for this morning, which is Matthew 22, 23 to 33. Again, that's Matthew 22, 23 to 33. Uh, for the past few weeks, we've been in the section of Matthew where Jesus experiences a series of confrontations from Israel's religious leaders. It's Tuesday of Passion Week currently in our passage, just three days before the crucifixion. Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Sunday. On Monday, he rebuked the nation for their religious hypocrisy as he cleansed the temple. Now on Tuesday, the religious leaders muster together a coalition to challenge Jesus. The religious leaders, of course, had rejected his message, but Jesus is so popular among the crowds at this point that they can't just simply up and arrest him, seize him by force. So they choose to adopt an alternate approach to take Jesus down. The only strategy that they can really think can work at this point, given his immense popularity, they try to discredit him. They confront him publicly with a series of questions designed to trap Jesus into making a statement that is either theologically or politically problematic, one that will alienate the crowds or perhaps even incite the Roman authorities against him so that hopefully his ministry will be put to an end in shame and disgrace. Up to this point, the religious leaders have challenged Jesus on the basis of his authority. They've asked him, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? After Jesus successfully rebuffs that effort to entrap him, actually bringing disgrace onto them instead, they then regroup with this second question that's designed to entrap Jesus politically. They ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Again, that question is designed to pit Jesus between the people in Rome, to make a statement that will land him in trouble with either Caesar or with the people. And again, Jesus escapes the trap. He answers the question without alienating either. Now in today's passage, they regroup again for a second time. This is their third challenge now. At first, it was the religious leadership as a whole that challenged Jesus. Then it was just the Pharisees and the Herodians that challenged him. Now, in today's passage, it's the Sadducees. They're going to lead this third attempt to shame Jesus. And this is what Matthew writes, Matthew 22, 23-33. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Uh, Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Well, once again, over the past several weeks, we've watched Jesus handle this series of questions from Israel's religious leaders as they've attempted to publicly discredit his messianic claims. And for the most part, my approach, as I've tried to explain these passages, has been to clarify and apply the meaning of Jesus' answer to the issue in question. In other words, the religious leaders are trying to trip Jesus up And they're trying to trip him up by asking him to address some particular theological issue. And what I've tried to do is explain and apply the implications of those specific theological issues. So like in the first challenge, Jesus addressed the hardness of the religious leaders' hearts in their rejection of John's baptism with the parable of the two sons. He said that they are like a son who tells his father, I'll obey you, and then does nothing, while the tax collectors and the prostitutes were like the son who tells his father, I'll obey you, only to later repent and obey. He says that their rejection of John was like that, and then he basically tells them that they're not going to heaven. Uh, We responded to that passage by exploring the relationship between obedience and faith. Jesus says that the religious leader's profession of faith is not enough because it's not matched with actual repentance. They were hard-hearted. That hard-heartedness was displayed in their rejection of John, 
Therefore, Jesus says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into heaven before them. Because they did believe in John and repent. You know, why does, why does Jesus make that statement? What's the relationship between repentance and salvation, between obedience and faith? We spend our time in, our, in that passage trying to answer those questions. Point is, Jesus answered the religious leaders' unbelief with this teaching that connects salvation and repentance. And so I handled Jesus' answer head on, so to speak, by talking about the implications of that concept, that answer. Uh, I then did the same thing last week as we looked at the controversy surrounding the poll tax. The Pharisees bring that question to Jesus, not because the dilemma created by the tax was in and of itself a core theological issue. Rather, they bring it hoping to pin Jesus between the desires of the people and the power of Caesar. In other words, even though the Pharisees are challenging Jesus' messianic claims, the question itself does not directly relate to those claims. It's really kind of a side issue. It doesn't directly debunk Jesus' messianic claims. Its purpose is rather to bring him into a politically and legally vulnerable position. If I could put it this way, they're trying to sling mud. Uh, You know how in political uh, elections, one candidate will often denounce another candidate's stance on a relatively unknown, unimportant issue in order to attack that candidate's character. Well, that's basically what this question was. They're trying to discredit Jesus with a side issue, one that doesn't directly relate to his Messianic claims. Even still, we looked at how Jesus answered that question and related it to how we today as Christians, should interact with unbelieving rulers. Uh, That's not the type of subject matter that you'd think that you'd be dealing with during Passion Week. After all, that seems like an ethical issue, right? Not a salvific one. And that's not what you'd really expect to encounter during Passion Week. I mean, if we're getting to the climax of Jesus' redemptive mission, and if His messianic claims are being challenged, then you'd expect to be dealing with issues related to salvation, not ethics. But that's the kind of question that's presented, and so we dealt with it at that level. We explored the ethical implications of Jesus' answer to the question about the poll tax. So, up to this point, my point is this. We've been dealing with Jesus' answer to these questions more or less at face value. And I think that one thing we may miss in all of this is the example that Jesus sets for us in this exchange. You know, there's a principle in biblical interpretation which says description is not prescription. Description is not prescription. And what that principle means is that you don't go to an account about someone like Abraham and say, go and do likewise, as if if everything about Abraham's life was morally exemplary. Clearly, it wasn't. I mean, just look at the polygamy or the lying Abraham was clearly not a morally perfect individual. So just because Abraham does something in the Scripture does not mean that the Bible is telling you to go and do the same thing. And this is how it is with most biblical figures. fact of the matter is that most of the narrative in Scripture is not written in order to teach morals, per se. That's just not the point, to give you examples to follow. Now, this is not to say that It's not there to tell you how to live. It clearly is. And that's not to say that there aren't some passages here and there that are meant to serve as examples. All I'm saying is that not every example in Scripture is, in fact, exemplary. In fact, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that much of the Old Testament was given to us as an example of what not to do. This is actually how narrative works. It is there, first and foremost, to explain God's unfolding plan of redemption, and then second, to instruct us in how we can become participants in that plan. In other words, it's not there simply to teach us how to be good people. It's there to show us how we can have a relationship with God. And God uses people in the Scripture, both good and bad, to explain these points. So the role of the reader, therefore, is to figure out what point God is trying to get across. This is what is meant by description is not prescription. An action is not exemplary just because someone is doing it in the Bible. And this is applied just as much to Judas, right? Who betrayed Jesus and then went out and hung himself in grief over his sin. As it is to Abraham or Moses or David. You can't just automatically spiritualize the life of any biblical character because they are all sinners who often made foolish and even sinful choices. 
Now, the exception to this rule, of course, is Jesus. Now, I should clarify, this is not to add moral force to every single thing that Jesus did. I mean, if the Bible told us that Jesus ate eggs for breakfast, that doesn't mean that we should all go and eat eggs for breakfast, because there's no moral import to what you eat for breakfast, right? So, in that sense, you could say that even with Jesus, description is not always prescription. However, however, the one thing that makes Jesus different as it relates to this principle, is that while everyone else in human history is a sinner, Jesus is not. He is absolutely perfect. He's the perfect man. And this means that His life and His life alone is ipso facto prescriptive. His life is, by its very definition, the mold into which the rest of us are to be formed. Not only because we are His disciples, but because He is, in fact, the perfect man. I mean, when it says that man was made in the image of God, you want to know what that looks like? You look at Jesus, who is himself the very image of the invisible God. So we need to often be looking to Christ as our example, even in instances, even in instances, by the way, when the author's main point is not to give us an example from Jesus. Even then, it is still safe, even recommended perhaps, to look to Jesus as our example. Because he's the perfect man. He understands how to live righteously, how to live for the glory of God better than anyone else. And so as we move through this passage, I think it's important that we take time to pause and observe how Jesus handles these challenges from the religious authorities. And most especially, I think we need to pay attention to the challenge that happens here with the Sadducees. Over the past few weeks, we've been talking about how we must succeed in the Great Commission. This discussion has come out of our study of the parable of the tenants and the the parable of the wedding feast and the parable of the tenants. Jesus explains that because Israel leaders have failed to give God the fruit that He's demanded, even going so far as to actually obscure the gospel message, He's going to advance His gospel through the church instead. Israel's turned down God's offer to advance the kingdom, so God's going to use someone else instead. That's the message of the parable of the tenants. In the parable of the wedding feast, Jesus then explains that This does not mean the Gentiles are automatically in the kingdom just because Israel has temporarily lost its opportunity. In other words, their inclusion in God's kingdom is not guaranteed by by the other's exclusion. No, they must themselves act on the offer Jesus has given. Well, we took those two principles in hand and we said, look, if God rejected the tenants who refused to give Him His fruit in its season, electing to instead rent the vineyard out to someone else who will, then what will happen to the second group of people if they too fail to give God His fruit in its season? And we said that the answer is that they too will be rejected, or at least not rejected perhaps, but at least disciplined. In other words, God isn't going to let them stand idle and repeat the sins of their predecessors. They must do what their predecessors did not uh, or face a like reaction from God. This means that we must evangelize and disciple. We must attack the Great Commission. Evangelistic apathy, neglect, is not an option for us. So we've been talking about how to do this. And we've been doing this particularly on Sunday evening, if you've been there as a part of that discussion. We've said we really need to do this, and we'd all probably admit that we're not as faithful to do this as we need to be. So how can we help one another excel here? How can we get better at this? And of course, we've kind of tossed some different ideas on the table about how to do that. Well, one of the major conclusions that we've come to as we've had this discussion is that we need to get better at knowing how to evangelize. In other words, many of you have said that when it comes to evangelism, the problem isn't with desire, per se. It's a matter of knowing how to go about it. And we've noted that this is the case at a few different levels. For example, uh, just getting the conversation started, that can often be hard, difficult. Uh, figuring out when to speak and when to be patient. Basically, picking our spots wisely, that can be a challenge, and I could go on. Well, one of the things that we said is part of that problem is confidence. Having the courage to speak. And we said that part of confidence, part of having that courage, is knowing what to say when confronted with an objection. Like we've all experienced that moment when you're sharing the gospel with someone and then they ask you a question that you don't have an answer for. It's normal to go away from that conversation a little embarrassed, perhaps a little ashamed, 
And the temptation in that moment is to say, well, I'm not going to do that again. Uh, I know I've sometimes gone away from those types of conversations, even thinking I made it worse. Like, because I didn't have an answer for that individual, that I actually hardened that person in their unbelief. Because now they think the Bible doesn't have answers to, the, to their questions just because I didn't have answers to their questions. And so like the third man in the parable of the talents, I'll take this stewardship that's been entrusted to me by God and bury it in the dirt for fear that I will face a stricter judgment if I try to actually do something with it. Now obviously there's a breakdown in faith going on there. When, when I do that, I'm not trusting that God can use my imperfect attempts to share Christ to further His kingdom. Uh, sometimes pride may be an issue in that as well. We're embarrassed not because we're concerned about what God thinks of us, but about what the other person thinks of us. We feel like a fool, and so for fear of being embarrassed, again, we just avoid evangelism. And those are both sin issues that need to be addressed in their own order. However, last week we also noted that if we could feel more confident in our ability to handle objections, then we might be more eager to evangelize. Like it would help to have an answer ready for those objections. Not necessarily because we think those answers will necessarily save anyone. The scripture is very clear. Repentance is more of an issue of the heart than it is the mind. It's wrapped up more in a person's desires than it is their intellect. God has to change the heart of a person to believe. And that's something that happens beyond the mere realm of head knowledge. God must make them alive. He must regenerate them spiritually for the gospel message to be received as any in any way appealing. Again, God's able to do that even with our imperfect answers. And conversely, apart from that regeneration, no one will be saved, even with the very best answers that we have to offer. So it is not essential to have an answer ready to be able to evangelize. And having an answer ready does not guarantee success in evangelism. Let's just get that straight. But what it does do, having an answer ready, one thing it does do is it gives us confidence so that we can know, even if the person rejects everything that we've had to say, at least we've represented Christ well. They can't blame their unbelief on our ignorance. On the day of judgment, they won't be able to stand before God and declare, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence because of our neglect. So we want to know how to handle these objections because we believe that this will help encourage us to be faithful in the discharge of this directive that we've received from Christ to go out and make disciples of all the nations. Well, the answers that Jesus gives in the temple, they serve as an example to us about how to handle objections to the faith. Of course, this isn't, this isn't exactly an evangelistic setting. These religious leaders are coming to trap Jesus, and so far from trying to convert them, Jesus is actually condemning them. He's declaring their coming destruction. All the same, the questions that these religious leaders bring, these objections that Jesus so skillfully handles, they're not unlike the kind of objections that we very often face as we proclaim Christ. What Jesus shows us here is how to handle these objections with courage, with poise, and perhaps most importantly, with wisdom. With wisdom. These men come to undermine Jesus, but Jesus handles their objections so skillfully that He utterly silences His opponents. By the end, there's nothing they can say to Jesus to discredit His message. In fact, by the end of the day, the only recourse that these religious leaders are going to have going forward is to arrest Jesus under cover of darkness, railroad Him on the basis of a series of trumped-up charges, and then blackmail the sitting governor to put Him to death. They can't really disagree with Jesus. They can't say that He's wrong. So they can only hate Him. Clearly, we should be taking notes, right? Here's the master teacher answering his critics and silencing them with his answers. If we want to know how to answer our opponents, here's the model right here before us. There's no better place to go than the words of Jesus. So what I want to do with today's passage is note how Jesus handles unbelief. And in particular, I want to know how he handles religious unbelief. And I realize I've taken a pretty, kind of a pretty roundabout way to get to this point. That's been a pretty long introduction, so to speak. But the point is actually pretty simple. In this passage, Jesus takes a two-pronged approach 
to handling religious unbelief. And I think it would benefit us evangelistically to observe what this approach is. I think if we can get the concepts here down, uh, we'll be able to handle these types of, of objections much more competently and we'll become much more confident to handle the questions that come out of religious unbelief and we will be therefore encouraged to engage the lost for the sake of Christ. So let's take a look at what Jesus does here. And I want to begin by defining what I mean by this term, religious unbelief. I think Jesus' response here is sufficient to answer really any type of unbelief, but it is particularly keyed in to objections that come from religious unbelief. You see, up to this point, Jesus has handled a couple of different types of objections to His authority. And while each of his answers to these objections are helpful in their own right, they do not answer the objection that comes from the position of unbelief. Now, by this, I don't mean that Jesus' opposition in any way believed in him when they came to him with these questions about his authority or or the poll tax. Obviously, they rejected Jesus when they asked those questions. Uh, Those questions were designed to actually trap him. So clearly, they're an expression of unbelief. However, they were not presented from the position of unbelief. And what I mean is that these first two questions were really framed as a kind of religious test. The people who asked them claimed adherence to the Scripture and were actually trying to measure Jesus against that standard. This question here is different. In this question, the Sadducees come with a question that is really designed to mock, to mock an orthodox theological position. That's different. That's different. And the first challenge, where the religious leaders ask about the source of Jesus' authority, the problem is hardness of heart. The religious leaders can see the truth of what Jesus is doing, but they're refusing to acknowledge it. Even still, when they make that challenge, they do it according to the Scripture. When they ask Jesus about the source of His authority, they're lifting Him up against the standards set out in Scripture, and Jesus answers in kind. In the second challenge, the religious leaders try to bait Jesus into making a statement that is either scripturally or politically untenable. Again, they do that because they hate Jesus, but still the way in which they come at Him is, in a sense, within the framework of Scripture. They accept what the Scripture says about God's authority over them, and they're asking Jesus this question to see if He believes the same, if His understanding of government is consistent with God's. Now, Jesus' answer to both of those questions are each helpful in their own way because, again, He models for us how to handle these types of objections. For instance, the first challenge, the one about authority, uh, that's an objection that's rooted in abject hard-heartedness. The religious leaders can see the truth, but they're refusing to acknowledge it. This is not unlike those who try to say something Like, you know, there's no such thing as right and wrong. Morality is simply a man-made construct created for the order and health of society. Truth is, in actuality, relative. No one believes that. That's such a blatantly false statement. No one actually believes that. Even still, people will raise this kind of objection. Jesus shows us how to handle that kind of of an objection. And what does He do? He exposes their hypocrisy. In this instance, he does so by, taking, by asking about John the Baptist in particular. Basically, he shows the crowds how clear their rejection of the obvious is, and this in turn discredits their objection to his authority. This is how you answer someone who says something so obviously false as morality is relative. You expose their inconsistency, you expose their hypocrisy, even for what it is, perhaps, for instance, by even showing how they actually don't live that way. Now, I'm not saying that this kind of response is going to convert your opponent. It probably won't. If anything, it's probably going to anger them. I'll tell you that. In fact, Proverbs 17.10 says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. In other words, there's no reasoning with a fool. Because as it says in Proverbs 15.5, they despise instruction. And that's what you're dealing with when someone makes one of these statements. You're dealing with a fool. You're dealing with someone who is willfully ignorant. That's what a fool is. And you can't win an argument with a fool because they've already demonstrated they are impervious to wisdom. Again, they are willfully ignorant. 
So you're not going to convert the fool with that kind of an answer. But what does happen when you respond this way is that you expose the fool's foolishness to everyone else who's watching so that they can see the fool's error, so that they can see who the, who the fool is, see that he is in fact a fool, and discard him and become wise. It says in Proverbs 21.11, when a scoffer is punished, the simple becomes wise. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's not trying to convert the religious leaders with his response. He's exposing their foolishness to the crowds so that they can avoid their teaching and their error. Again, this is all very helpful to know how to answer the hard-heartedness of a fool. And the second challenge, the religious leaders are actually attacking Jesus' character. They're taking Jesus' claims, and then they challenge his consistency with those claims in hopes that he'll say or do something in his answer that will get him into trouble. Either he'll support the poll tax and show that, contrary to what he's saying about his Messianic claims, he's actually fine with Roman rule, in which case his claims can be discarded. Or he'll reject the poll tax and get into trouble with the authorities for rebelling against Rome. This is not unlike those who challenge the Christians' call to repentance by saying, yeah, but you don't keep the Old Testament law, so who are you, who are you to condemn me for my sin? The idea is that you either end up denying the authority of the Old Testament law, in which case, in their mind at least, you have undermined the authority of Scripture, or you overcorrect by stating that the law is in effect, in which case all you've done is, number one, proven, them to, proven to them that you're right, you're a hypocrite, and number two, put yourself in a position where you're suddenly trying to support the death penalty for sexual sins and disobedient children or something like that. Either way, the goal is to expose you as a fraud, and put you in a popularly indefensible position. Either you're discredited as a fake, or you're discounted as a radical. Either option works, so long as you come off as a character of what you really are. Jesus shows us how to handle that type of a situation as well. He doesn't take the bait and get swallowed into advocating for what is really an unbiblical position. Instead, he provides a thoughtful and nuanced answer to the question that shows there's no actual contradiction in the dilemma they're trying to push on him. This is how we respond to these types of objections as well. We don't respond with knee-jerk reactions, but with answers that are at once both discerning and precise. We demonstrate that there is no inconsistency in our character. The only reason our opponent thinks we're being inconsistent is because they themselves are without understanding and can't see that this apparent tension is easily resolved. Again, this too is helpful to know how to handle these types of personal attacks. But again, I would note that as helpful as these examples are, again, the objections in question still come from the position of belief. Meaning that the people who raise these objections do so while acknowledging and even claiming some type of orthodoxy. In other words, the Pharisees weren't denying the concept of the Messiah when they challenged Jesus' authority. They just challenged the basis for his own Messianic claims. What's interesting about the question in today's passage is that it's raised from the position of unbelief, and not just any kind of unbelief, but religious unbelief. You see, today's question comes from the, from the Sadducees. Now, if you're not familiar with the Sadducees, they were a Jewish religious sect, much like the Pharisees, but with a very different set of beliefs. In fact, last week I mentioned the Zealots as one of the four main sects of first century Judaism. They, uh, uh, they were a group that I said was committed to the idea of Israel as an independent state, free from foreign rule, and they were willing to die to make that a reality if necessary. That was the Zealots. Well, the Sadducees, along with the Pharisees and a group known as the Essenes, were one of these four major sects, all of which had their own particular twist on Judaism. What made the Sadducees unique is that they only saw the Pentateuch, uh, which is to say they only saw the first five books of the Bible, the books written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They only saw those books as authoritative. That's not to say that they didn't acknowledge the other books of Scripture at all. They just didn't see them as Scripture. They would have seen those books, books like 1 and 2 Samuel, Isaiah, the Psalms, uh, they would have seen those books kind of like what we see the, the Apocrypha to be today. They'd say, well, maybe they're useful, maybe they're helpful, but they're not necessarily inspired, and they're certainly not part of the canon. 
And this is important, by the way, because it helps explain the answer that Jesus gives to this question. Jesus uses Scripture to answer this question about the resurrection. And the Scripture He uses might seem kind of obscure, given the other passages that are out there that speak about the resurrection. But the reason why He uses this particular Scripture, it would seem, is because it comes from the Pentateuch. It comes from the section of Scripture that these men would have seen as authoritative. So the Sadducees didn't accept the entire Old Testament as authoritative. And this created some pretty unique wrinkles in their theology. For example, the Sadducees were very concerned about the temple. They centered their worship around the temple because that was very much the focus of worship in the Mosaic Law, right? They were actually different from the Pharisees in this regard. The Pharisees, of course, saw the temple as important, but because they accepted the testimony of prophets like Isaiah... They, the Pharisees, like Jesus, would have understood that God was concerned more with with obedience than with just sacrifice and worship. The Sadducees didn't necessarily think that way. For them, it all centered primarily around the temple. In fact, it would seem that the reason why you don't hear too much about the Sadducees in the New Testament is because, number one, their theology didn't travel much outside of Jerusalem for obvious reasons. Jews in the diaspora were more liable to side with the Pharisees than the Sadducees because of this focus on the temple. They couldn't go up to worship at the temple all the time. So they, they don't come up much because they weren't popular because of that. And then, number two, they were essentially extinct with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. If all your worship centers around the temple and then the temple is destroyed, you don't have a leg to stand on anymore. Now, again, they were generally small in number two. They weren't as popular as the Pharisees. That's one of the reasons we don't see them come up a lot. But I think you can probably trace a lot of that back to this same issue, to this focus on the temple. Now, as you can probably expect, uh, most priests were Sadducees. So if there was any one group that would have been both confounded and outraged by what Jesus said and he cleansed the temple, it would have been the Sadducees. So it's not hard to imagine why they're now coming to challenge Jesus. Another wrinkle in Sadducean theology, when you think, when you see, uh, and you see it in this passage, was that they denied the resurrection. According to the Sadducees, this life is it. It's all you got. When you die, and you go down to Sheol, when you go down to the grave, that's it. And the reason why they held this position goes back to their view on the Scriptures. Again, they only saw the Pentateuch as authoritative, and the Pentateuch doesn't speak too much about the idea of a physical resurrection. The resurrection is an idea that begins to rise to greater prominence the further you go into the Old Testament. Now, that's not to say that the idea is a late development, per se, but it's just not dealt with very much until later on in the Old Testament. And even then, it isn't addressed near at the same level as what happens when we get to the New Testament. So the Sadducees didn't acknowledge the entire canon. They didn't believe in concepts like the resurrection. They lived life as if this is all there is. In this way, they would have been very much like today's liberal theologian. You have Christians today, some even from major denominations, who say, you know, we can't take the whole Bible literally. It's full of errors and inaccuracies. And then based on that understanding, they'll start to reject all types of really essential doctrines. You know, the earth wasn't literally created in six days, they'll say. And hell, it doesn't really exist. God just sort of annihilates the soul of those who don't believe. He doesn't torment them forever. And that's if the afterlife even exists. Some of these so-called Christians have even rejected the very idea of an afterlife. For them, Christianity is nothing more than a set of morals, and they'll say that that's all that Jesus ever intended to be. He didn't claim to be the Son of God, they say. That was a title that the church really put on him after he died as they developed this kind of mythology around him. And if you scrape all of that, that away, and you get down to who Jesus actually was what he actually said and did, not what the apostles said he did, but what he actually said and did, and you'll see that he was really just a moral teacher. So we can't accept all the Scripture as authoritative, and when we accept those positions that are, what we find is that this life is essentially it. Christianity is a moral system meant to enhance this life. Again, save for the emphasis on morality, 
rather than temple worship, that's all very Sadducean. Well, it's this type of system that I'm referring to when I speak of religious unbelief. I think most of us would agree that the liberal theologian is really a Christian in name only. They claim Christianity, but they actually deny many of the core tenets of the faith. That's basically the Sadducees. They're Jewish, but it's a skeptical Judaism. How skeptical? Well, you only need to look at how they ask Jesus about the resurrection. They come really mocking the entire concept. They go, look, Jesus... (laughs) Look, Jesus, how ridiculous is the idea of a resurrection, really? And then they give this whole scenario with the seven brothers to try to prove their point. The point is that the idea is not intellectually defensible. It's not reasonable. It's not logical. Again, this is the same approach taken by the liberal theologian. The idea of eternal punishment is not intellectually defensible in their eyes. So they toss it. Six-day creation, the deity of Christ, miracles, all laughable. So get rid of those two. This is unbelief. And it's the same kind of unbelief that the raging atheist comes with, but it's dressed up in religious garb. So again, Jesus answers this question, and as He answers it, He really shows us how to answer unbelief generally, but He shows us how to handle religious religious unbelief specifically. And this matters to us because that's the kind of unbelief that we're likely to encounter. Don't get me wrong, we're very likely to encounter just general unbelief too. In fact, that kind of unbelief is becoming more and more prevalent in our day and age, more and more accepted by our society. But right now, as it is in this day and age, in the time and place in which we live, I think we're still more likely to encounter religious unbelief. We meet people who grew up in Christian homes, and so there's this kind of openness to the Bible perhaps but they've still been affected enough by the secular culture around them that they're skeptical. They go, you know, I I see what Jesus is saying, and don't get me wrong, it sounds okay. But I kind of feel like this is all made up. So how do you handle that kind of a person? I think Jesus shows us right here. And I think you see the summary in verse 29. There Jesus starts his answer to the Sadducees' question by saying, you are wrong. Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. The Sadducees ask this question about marriage and the kingdom of heaven, and the idea is that it's supposed to make a mockery out of the resurrection. I mean, there's absolutely no biblical basis for the idea of polyandry, right? Which is the marriage of multiple husbands. There's not a great case to be made for polygamy either, by the way, which is marriage to multiple wives. But at least there are examples of polygamy in the Old Testament. There's absolutely nothing as it relates to polyandry, being married to multiple husbands. So the religious leaders bring up this example of this woman who's married to the succession of seven brothers. Now, and again, I, I, I kind of pause here as I think about this. I, they bring up this question about the seven brothers. Now, why brothers four and five are willing to marry this woman after the death of brothers one through three? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I would be a little suspicious at that point, right? But it's just an illustration, just an example meant to show the foolishness of the concept of a physical resurrection. The whole idea is that no brother can make a superior claim to the other to say that she is more his wife than the other. And of course, polyandry is not biblically defensible. So how can you possibly sort out this dilemma in the afterlife? She can't be the wife to all of them and there's no basis to determine who's more her, her husband than the other. So clearly they think this proves that the concept of a resurrection is logically indefensible. But does it? Does it prove that? Look at what Jesus says. He says, you are wrong. He says, look guys, you just don't get it. You don't understand how this works. And then he breaks down his answer into two parts. He says, you know neither the Scripture nor the power of God. And I think that provides the framework for his answer. He answers in two parts. First, he addresses how the Sadducees do not understand the power of God. And then second, he discusses how they do not understand the Scripture. 
And I think the order there is important. He starts with the power of God first. He explains how they're not taking taking into account what God is capable of. And then based on that, he moves to what the Scripture says. Basically, they're rejecting the idea of the resurrection because they think it's laughable. It's not intellectually defensible. And what Jesus does is he says, how can you reject an idea as laughable when it's God we're talking about? Don't you realize that he's able to resolve these questions in ways that we can't even begin to fathom? What you need to be asking is not, oh, how ridiculous does this seem? But what does the scripture say? You start there. And you take the rest in faith, knowing that God can resolve the rest. And the scripture, by the way, it teaches that there's a resurrection. So problem solved. There's no dilemma. The issue is that you're failing to take into account what God is capable of. The first half of this answer, of course, comes in verse 30. Jesus says, In the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Basically, he says, that's not how the resurrection even works, guys. So you're bringing up an objection that doesn't apply. Now, it's unclear where Jesus gets this information from. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if Jesus could point to chapter and verse that explains this idea about marriage and the resurrection from the Bible. I wouldn't be surprised if he could do that. After all, you can see from the rest of his answer that he can deduce substantial doctrines from a very small amount of information, such as the ability of his unfallen mind. But he doesn't go to chapter and verse to prove his point, so perhaps it's a special revelation. Either way, you can see his point. He's telling the Sadducees, the problem is that you're trying to fit the concept of the resurrection into your own very limited framework of understanding. You can't judge God's scripture that way, because he is infinite. He has answers to these types of questions that you can't even fathom. So then, Jesus says, moving on to the second part, what does the scripture say? Let's start there. That really needs to be our starting point, not your own finite judgment. Then, of course, he goes to the Scriptures, and he says, see, see right there, it says resurrection. So, there's resurrection. He does this, by the way, by going to a passage that I don't think any of us would ever go to to prove the resurrection. He goes to Exodus 3.6, where God says to Moses, over 400 years after the death of Jacob, I am the God of your father, uh, fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The point, as subtle as it may seem, seems to come from the tense of the verbs there. Now, there's no tense explicitly stated in, in Hebrew in, in Exodus 3.6, but it's implied and it's translated as such in the Greek Old Testament. God tells Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was. And that matters. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob cease to exist when they die, then it wouldn't be accurate for God to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they were annihilated. He's not still their God. He'd be forced to say, I was their God. I was. But God still sees himself as presently as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that doesn't make any sense to us as temporal beings unless those men in some way still existed. Jesus says God said that, right? So then he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Those men have to be alive. Again, that can seem like Jesus is making a mountain out of a molehill here, but what it goes to show you is, number one, that it is the very words of Scripture that are inspired, right? Like even verb tenses matter. And so number two, we have to pay very close attention to the actual words of the Scripture when we interpret. Even something as apparently insignificant as the tense of a verb, can reveal something as doctrinally significant and as substantial as the resurrection. And just to be clear, there doesn't appear to be any argument from the Sadducees. Everyone can agree with Jesus once he makes this point. The crowds are even astonished. Jesus pulls this verse out, and they're not going, oh, wait a second, that's not what that verse says. They're saying, well, wait a second, how did we not see that before? They're amazed. So anyways, this is how Jesus handles religious unbelief. He says, first you need to stop and think about who you're dealing with here. He points to the power of God. And then second, he says, so then, let's see what the Scriptures say. And the second point, by the way, is particularly critical to the one who practices 
religious unbelief. It matters to the one who at some level accepts the authority of Scripture as the Sadducees do. Don't get me wrong, I think this approach is is helpful, even needed for all forms of unbelief, religious and non-religious, but this second point is going to be particularly powerful to those who claim scriptural authority at some level. And again, that's important because that's where we live. Don't get me wrong, there's certainly more and more people in our own sort of localized society that are tossing the Bible out the window. That kind of unbelief is rising. But there are still a great many people who belong more to the category of religious unbelief. Like there are many people who maybe grew up in church and they're not openly hostile to the gospel per se. They're just not sure it's all true. Perhaps they've been influenced by secular sources that have tried to dismantle the authority and inerrancy of Scripture or attack the very concept of the supernatural. And so they're left questioning the factuality of biblical events. Or maybe they've come up with their own questions about perceived inconsistencies in the Scripture, but they're just not sure they can accept biblical revelation. There are a lot of people like that. A lot of people who are just sort of slowly drifting away from the church in doubt. And really, these aren't the only ones who practice religious unbelief. You have a lot of folks uh, who are in the church who do this as well. Like they haven't walked away from Christ exactly. They go to church, they profess the faith, but they will reject portions of the scripture or if they don't reject them, they'll at least reinterpret them to fit within a framework that makes them logically or popularly defensible. Again, I think... I think of the issue of creation right away. People will say, you know, from the data I'm seeing, there's just no way God could have created the earth in six days, so Genesis 1 must not really mean that. Again, they don't reject Christ per se, but they reject that portion of the Scripture. They reinterpret, reframe its meaning. So how do you handle these objections? Who knows? Maybe you're someone who's wrestled with one of these ideas. How do you work your way through that? I think Jesus gives you the answer right here with this two-pronged approach. So, for example, suppose someone says, I just can't accept the gospel when one of its implications is the concept of hell. How can a good God punish someone for eternity over such minor infractions? That doesn't seem logical. doesn't seem reasonable. Well, what do you say? You begin with the power of God. And you say, you know, don't you think it's possible that the problem could be that you don't see justice the way that God sees it because your mind has fallen? Like, couldn't it be possible if what the Scripture says is true, that the reason why hell seems so offensive is not because God is primitive and small-minded, but because you are? Doesn't it make sense that if He's God, then his understanding of justice is so far above our own that we are going to probably have a hard time even grasping it. And then you go to the Scriptures. You say, what do the Scriptures say? And the Scriptures demonstrate that there's a hell. So we can't reject hell on biblical grounds. It's right there. The same answer applies, by the way, to the whole tension to the whole tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility as well. You know, people ask this question, how can God hold me accountable when He's sovereignly reigning over all things? Well, Paul answers that one, right? He says, Romans 9, 19-24, You will say to me then, why does He still find fault? For who can resist His will? And note how he answers this. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its uh, molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Again, Paul points to the power of God. And he says... You know, who are you to think that you can start calling God's justice into question? And then he offers up this potential answer to the objection of human sovereignty, whereby God's grace is made manifest through the patience that He shows to sinners. Point is, God can handle the objection, the apparent you know, uh, conflict, even if we don't always understand what the solution is. You know, we read Job earlier today in our call to worship. You can see God Himself take a similar approach with Job. 
Job begins to object to the suffering he's experienced. He begins to question God's judgment. God steps in and begins to question Job's judgment, all while pointing to his divine power. He says, I'm sorry, Job. Were you there when I created the world? And can you tell me how the creation works? The idea is that God is far superior to Job to the degree that Job really cannot even begin to fathom the reasons that God has for ordering things the way that he has ordered them. Job, of course, isn't privy to the whole exchange that's occurred in heaven between God and Satan. He has no idea the purpose that God is working out in his suffering. So Job is really not in a position to question God. You can take this same approach to the one who questions why there's so much evil and suffering in the world. When someone starts to say, I just can't believe in a God that lets such bad things happen to good people. You say, do you really think that you can stand in judgment over God's actions like that? Don't you think it's possible that God has a purpose for suffering that you can't comprehend? And then you point to passages like Job or to passages like Genesis 50, 20, where Joseph tells his brothers that they meant to do him evil, but God meant it for good. Or you point to passages like Romans 8, 28, which says that God causes all things to come together for good to those who love him. And we could go on with various examples, but I think you see the point. When these kind of objections are brought up, when someone disagrees with scriptural teaching because it seems intellectually indefensible, this is how you should respond. You look to the power of God, realizing that anything is possible when you're dealing with an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise God, just because something seems strange to you doesn't mean that it's impossible. It may just mean that we lack the sufficient data to understand. Our minds are not perhaps even capable of understanding the issue from God's perspective because His thoughts are so much beyond our own. So again, we don't, we don't know about what's going to happen with marriage in heaven. or we, Even if we did, we maybe wouldn't even understand it completely as it is. We take that into account. And then taking that thought in hand, you ask the question, so assumptions of what can be aside, What does the scripture actually say on the issue? And you go there. This is the pattern that Christ models for us. And given who he is, I think we can take this as an example of how to handle these types of situations. And I think I said this earlier, but I want to make my point clear again. I don't think that we can say that this approach that Jesus takes here is the one right approach to handling this type of unbelief, as if there's only one approach. But what we can do here is we can see an unfallen mind engaging unbelief. This is wisdom, ladies and gentlemen. And in this way, Jesus' example here, I think, is worthy of our emulation. Now again, this is not to say that any of this is going to necessarily save anyone. The scripture is clear, again, that the problem with salvation is spiritual, not intellectual. I mean, Jesus... I mean, you want to see an example of that. Look what right happens right here, right? Jesus proves his point to the Sadducees. He silences them. But they go away, and they're not believing in him, right? They don't go away believing. They go away rejecting him. This was actually Jesus' point back in the first challenge, this challenge over authority. The religious leaders knew where his authority came from, and they rejected it anyways. Jesus isn't really trying to convert anyone here. If anything, he's pronouncing condemnation. So, again, this approach may not in and of itself save anyone. But what it will do is help give you the confidence you need to proclaim the gospel and stand firm. When someone pushes back, you can have an answer ready, and so you'll be willing to engage others for the sake of Christ, more willing to do it. And that's really where most of the battle is, isn't it? Just mustering up the courage to talk with someone about Jesus. I think this passage is helpful in that sense. So as we close here this morning, let's pray that Christ would help us take today's message to heart, learn from His example, and by it, be emboldened to share our faith, to tell others of the hope that we have in Christ because of what He's done for us without fear. And let's pray that as we do that, that He might bring much fruit. Let's pray.